If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Oh my goodness, everybody. We have one of my very favorite psychologists and authors and just experts in sexual abuse with us today. I couldn't be more excited. Dr. Diane Langbird, she just put out a new book called Redeeming Power. I read it this week. It is phenomenal. And for such a time as this, this book needs to be in the hands of all of us. So I'm really excited to unpack with her in a little bit, a little about her, Diane. She's an internationally recognized psychologist, as I mentioned, a counselor of 47 years. She often speaks about abuse and trauma, you know, like me all over the world, but she has so much more depth to her. She directs her own counseling practice in Pennsylvania. She co-founded the Global Trauma Recovery Institute at the Michio Seminary in Philadelphia. She's also on the board of Grace, led by my friend Boz Chavijan, who we had on the podcast a few months ago. She also co-chairs the American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council and has authored a number of books. Um, One of them was my favorite when I was actually going through some of my hardest healing from my abuse. It was called On the Threshold of Hope. So welcome to the show, Dr. Langberg. Really excited to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. (laughs) Good. Well, obviously you've written quite a few things, and I don't know how you feel about this book that you're just putting out now, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, but I absolutely adored it. Um, I'm wondering why you decided to write this book and why now? The concrete practical answer is that somebody, Caitlin Beatty, actually picked up the phone and called me and said, you need to write a book on power and it needs to be written by a female. Mm. So it wasn't my original idea. It was actually <laughs> hers. And, yeah. and I asked, obviously, for some time to think about that mm-hmm. and um, decided to plunge in. And I'm not even sure how long ago that was, probably close to two years. So you've been writing this book for two years. I, I think it's more than that, actually, yeah. but at least that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think power is just something that we're all looking at now, especially as we just see so much of abuse in institutions, you know, coming to light and with, you know, high profile celebrities and, you know, the Me Too movement has done a good job of giving voice to survivors and helping, you know, others come forward with their stories and just seeing how power is just misused over and over again. So I wondered if you could just share a little bit, just kind of the foundation of how you would define power and the different kinds of power. The definition of power is really extremely basic. It simply means that you have whatever you're talking about has the capacity to impact. So that's everybody. Um, I I think that it is, and and I certainly talk about this in the book, but I think it is part of what it means to be made in the image of God uh, to have power. Mm -hmm. And he he told Adam and Eve, go out there and rule and subdue my earth. And those are power words. 
And it's very noticeable that he did not say anything about ruling each other, but he, he spoke about ruling his earth and obviously for good. And so that God-given quality that is part of his image in us has been twisted and misused and done hideous, diabolical things down through the centuries, mm. sometimes in his name. There's a lot of different kinds of power. And I, I think people most readily think of physical power. You know, if, if you weigh 50 pounds and somebody else weighs 250, they win. But there's verbal power where people are just good with words and can use them to manipulate, to control, to intimidate others. Um, there's emotional power. Um, and I'm sure we've all encountered people who know how to use either their emotions and or yours to twist something to hurt you. There's the power of knowledge. You know, if, if you're sick and you don't know what's wrong with you and you're scared about that and you go to somebody with an MD after his or her name, that person has the power of knowledge mm. um, and the power of position. They're the authority in the room. Mm -hmm. And probably the verbal power. So you can have several kinds rolled up in one person or certainly in one person in a particular scenario. There's economic power. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're really poor, you don't have economic power at all. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also uh, spiritual power mm. where you're either in a position in a spiritual framework and or using spiritual words to control or manipulate or intimidate other humans. It's really interesting to think about how, you know, we can feel like we have certain kinds of power over people or others have power over us. And there's, it's broken down into so many things, into so many ways. I even think about my own abuser and how many different kinds of power he held yes. over myself and my mother. And, you know, I didn't really understand the deception in abuse at the time until I was out of the abuse, you know, and then yes. looking back, seeing how power really contributed to the deception. Well, and it's many kinds often woven together. Right. So you don't recognize the components. You don't understand that it is power. It's very confusing. Mm -hmm. And often the words that are used are deceptive words that are confusing because they make evil look good. Absolutely. You're just thinking of, you know, his role in our community. He was a well-respected man, a businessman. In our church, he was a leader, you know, and then the economic power in our family. You know, my mom worked from home. And so the idea of just needing his, you know, finances and his authority and just believing everything that he said, we just felt so controlled in every aspect. Yes. Um, it made what he said to me um, about the abuse that I didn't know was abuse. You know, I thought he was teaching me. I thought, you know, he was to be trusted. He was to be respected. So the fact that I didn't have any other language to go along with the sexual abuse mm -hmm. um, just played right along with the deceptive power. Yes, he labeled it and you believed his labels because you had no other way to think about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So why do you think it's so important that we talk now about power? You know, I feel like for so long, you know, I've been speaking about sexual abuse for 18 years, 
we talk about abuse, we talk about grooming, we talk about power and control, but it wasn't until I read your book that I really realized that the power is not what we talk about as much. And in today's climate, politically, I think I myself am thinking about it more, Mm -hmm. but not in a way that I've been able to actually talk about it and to break it down. I think your book does such a great job of that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? You know, the, the misconceptions about the dynamics of power, why we need to be talking about it? Well, I don't think it's something that people actively think about or consciously Mm -hmm. think about very much. Um, Or if they do, it's something they think about either when they feel powerless and they're afraid and feel Mm -hmm. vulnerable, or when they want power and they are calculating with themselves about how to get it. But I don't think by and large, most of us give time to it. Uh, We don't see ourselves as having very much That's often true. People have tremendous power. That's not how they feel. So it's not something we self-evaluate and it's not something we have a lot of language for. And so we don't evaluate others. And so when someone with power tells us what they're doing is good, we don't know how to think about that except to believe them. And we're so so drawn to it. Well, yes. I mean, number one, it's part of our image bearing. So it's part of who we are. We're meant to have it and meant to use it to the glory of God. However, we've been drawn to it since Eden. We were drawn to false power from the beginning. And somehow they managed, just like we do, to call the false power true. It was going to make them more in the image of God, not less. You know, there, there was the deception. So the, the two things are there from the very beginning, um, but rarely considered, evaluated, or discussed by us. Yeah. And you talk about this has been in place since the beginning of time. I mean, yes. you talk in your book about how deceptions are systemic, meaning entire human systems perpetuate lies as truth. And I think as we're talking a lot more about systemic racism, it's important to just also be talking about systemic abuse. Yes. Words are used, which can be just one parent in a family or can be one leader in an entire institution or Mm -hmm. company or corporation or a leader of a nation. Mm -hmm. Words are used to deceive, seduce, draw in, convince so that the person who is seeking power not only gets it, but is assumed to be good and trustworthy. And then we quit asking questions. I wonder in your clinical expertise, are there people who are more prone to abuse their power? Yes, there are. We do need to first establish the fact that every single one of us does that. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) There are no exceptions. (laughs) And so- We may not have much to abuse some of Mm -hmm. us, but but we do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, but in terms of something as, you know, serious and, um, you know, dynamic as sexual abuse, you know, when you think about it in that sort of lens, would you say there's certain? Well, if you look at the statistics, for example, let's say, let's just take domestic violence first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those who are violent in the home tend to have histories of tremendous violence or histories of violence being used against them repeatedly or both. And so it it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Violence and abuse are ways to try and feel big by making somebody else 
little or squashed. Mm -hmm. You're feeding off of them. It's exploitive. If you're little, that means I'm big. And if I'm big, I'm better. And if I'm better, I'm safer and smarter. And I know how to take care of myself. I can't be little no matter the cost. And so people who have histories of violence, abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, lots of bullying, all that Mm -hmm. are um, more likely to be violent later on in life. Okay. How do you think gender roles and race even play into this conversation about power dynamics? Well, I think they're a huge component of it. Mm -hmm. If you just go back to slavery. Right. Absolutely. You know, we, we picked up thousands of people on one continent and dumped them down on ours and gave them no rights and no freedom and no dignity and no anything. Right. Preach. Yeah. For generations. Mm-hmm. And those who tried, who had remarkable courage and tried to get away were mm-hmm. often uh, killed in hideous ways. Right. Of course, only reinforced things to the uh, rest of them. The same thing with gender. If you look back through history, I mean, even just in the U.S., you know, women couldn't vote for forever. Crazy. It's so crazy. <laughs> yes. Which means you're not a whole person and you can't, and it's a, it's a screaming message that says you have no power. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing has been very, I mean, it wasn't just the U.S. That's been very true throughout history that women were deemed not to have power and were kept in place that they weren't allowed to get educated. Mm -hmm. Still places where they're not. They weren't allowed to hold a job. They weren't allowed to vote. So there are hundreds to thousands of years of history with different groups, such as females and those of another race, certainly not just African-Americans in this country, but others as well, uh, where that's just been part of what it means to be whoever you are. You don't really have very much power. It's just crazy to me that like we're still dealing with this stuff, you know, (laughs) like we're so modern, but we're not. No, we're not. And it's not going to go away. It's, it's part of the crushing of the image of God in us. Mm. And hopefully as we learn more about Christ and what he did with his power, and we learn better how to be his body as opposed to an institution with power, mm-hmm. things will change. Mm-hmm. They're not really going to change till he make everything new. Yeah. Sadly, I wish that wasn't the truth, but I do, I do know that you're right. You know, you wrote even in your book that Jesus uses his power to protect, to expose and to restore dignity. I just love that. You know, it just such a difference, such a a contrast to how we see people using power today, even Christians using their power. And it's, it's, it's so confusing to me that leaders in Christian circles in the church have just gone so far away from how Jesus used his power. And, you know, I think it's obvious to us, but I do think it's important to talk about it. You know, what is at stake when churches are not modeling the way Jesus used his power. When churches are, as we're seeing, and especially as I'm seeing, as I'm speaking in churches and hearing story after story of sexual abuse, you know, that churches have become such a fertile ground for abuse and for covering it up. Yes. You know, what, 
what is it at stake if we don't start to get that right? Well, lives are at stake, frankly, and that means literally in some cases, but right. in terms of a flourishing life mm-hmm. uh, that has been blessed, mm-hmm. so abuse of power always does damage to that. I, and I think I use this phrase in the book, I, I think we've lost our way. Mm. And we have come to see the church as an institution. It is not. It is not a building. It is not programs. It is not numbers. It isn't any of the things that we seem to applaud. And institutions were not made in the image of Christ. Humans were. And the church is his body. And a body that doesn't follow its head in the physical realm is really sick. You know, if your head tells you to go left and you keep going right, there's something wrong. (laughs) The connection isn't working. (laughs) Right. And so I think that's sort of illustrative of Mm -hmm. somehow, and I I think it's also been down through centuries. I mean, you can just see how the church becomes institutionalized and this mammoth thing with all the power and all the money and whatever. There are many ways that can happen from little tiny churches to huge mega churches to, you know, global churches. Mm -hmm. The church isn't that. Mm -hmm. The church is people who look like Jesus. That's Mm -hmm. it. And that is where power is, power that flourishes and blesses others and protects and bends down and becomes little because that's what he did with his power. He became little. You know, he, he let others take it on our behalf Yeah, and, and spoke extremely harshly name. about the people who misused their power in his name. Yeah. He was not too happy with them. <laughs> we've, we've lost our way. The, the point always from the beginning in Eden is love and obedience to him. And Adam and Eve failed that and we continue to fail it. And there's trash on the path every time we do. And a lot of it's human lives. Why do you think it continues that way? Like why are the churches and the institutions, why are they not getting it right? We've deceived ourselves. You know, if you start out with a little church and you end up with 3,000 people, you're a success. We have deceived ourselves that the institutional capacities or fruit or whatever you want to call it means that the spiritual fruit is there. And spiritual fruit has only to do with character. So if you're somebody hidden away somewhere and you have like three people who pay attention to your life and follow you in some fashion, and what they see in you is integrity like Jesus had integrity, that has eternal value. If you're the head of a huge church and you don't have integrity and people think you're wonderful and roll in the money and they praise you and everything else, you're not following him. It's in the character that it is seen, not in the outcome. If it's in the outcome, then Jesus made a mess. I wonder how the landscape of your work has changed over the course of the last few years, you know, as more cases within different churches, denominations, places of power, you know, have come to light. I've followed you for long enough to know you've been such a a strong, clear voice, especially lately with the Southern Baptist Convention and, um, and just your work with Boz. How has it changed though? Have you felt the change or do you feel like you've been saying the same thing for years and years and now it's just finally the churches are being exposed? Well, part of it has changed because I have changed. Talk um, about that. That's interesting. I'm old. I, you know, I graduated <laughs> from college in 1970. 
Yeah. And I talk about some of this in the book. And I, uh-huh. I came up to Philadelphia to go to graduate school to be a psychologist. And I was mm-hmm. a female Christian. And so I was the only female in my PhD program. And the church thought what it was doing was wrong because that's not what women were supposed to do. And then when I first started practicing, I saw Vietnam vets because it was the early 70s. And women asked to see me, not because I knew anything, because I was like 23 or something, 24, Uh but because I was female. And they began to tell me things that were extremely vague. And I grew up in a safe home. I didn't know that I knew people who had been sexually abused and lived with domestic violence. I obviously did statistically, but I, I didn't know. Yeah. So I began learning from women. And what I learned from the women was that their symptoms were the same as the Vietnam vets, which was eventually became post-traumatic stress disorder, which wasn't even a diagnostic category till 1980. 1980. Wow. Yes. So I, you know, I, I'm working with people for six or seven years before that's even a category. So obviously... I didn't know what I was doing. There was nothing in in graduate school about sexual abuse, except that Freud heard stories about it and said that the women were lying. So that was the extent of my knowledge. Mm. So some things haven't changed, but (laughs) um, he he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear it. So he said it wasn't true. Mm. So over the years, you know, I began learning a great deal about abuse and Mm. trying to find anything I could about it, but there wasn't very much. I learned from my clients, but nothing systemic ever occurred to me. It it wasn't on the books either. Yeah. Nobody wrote about those things. And so somewhere, I I don't know, in the eighties, I think I was challenged. I, I started describing a couple of cases to somebody and I was challenged to read the Holocaust literature. And that's where I learned about systemic abuse. The person who challenged me to do that knew enough from what I was saying that I was looking at something similar to that, that I didn't know. And nobody talked about systemic abuse. So that was when I began to think in those terms. So I worked out of a lot of ignorance for a long time, Mm -hmm. made a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. I missed tons of systemic stuff because I didn't know it was a category. I don't say that to excuse it, but I, I, I didn't know. And I remember, re- and I talk about Hitler in the book. You know, I, I remember reading his two-volume biography and reading all kinds of books about the Holocaust and mm-hmm. Auschwitz and everything else. Mm-hmm. Going, oh, oh. And I realized from reading Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi, both of whom were in the concentration camps, they sound like my vets and they sound like the women And that was the budding awareness of this thing called trauma. Man, I will say when you talk about that whole, the Holocaust stuff in the book, it hit me hard. I mean, you and I both have a heart for Cambodia, I know. And some other day, I would love to talk deeper with you and compare our experiences of seeing the killing fields, Mm. you know, from that genocide carried out by the Khmer Rouge in 1970s under Pol Pot. But On page 194, I had written this down. You said the church has its own killing field. You said they're made up of every abused, misused, oppressed human being down through the centuries that the church of Christ has ignored, silenced, or thrown out. You said child sexual abuse, rape, domestic violence, verbal and emotional abuse, the twisted and crushing use of power, 
said to be derived from Christ, but really used to feed the self or the system, all contribute to the killing fields. You said we can kill a soul by any of these means. It seems clear that God is calling us as he did the Israelites to see, to listen, and to stop believing deceptive words that somehow led us to hide or silence abuse and call it protection of the church. Wow. That gave me chills because it's the truth. It's it's so similar. It seems, how can you compare these things? But it's so, especially as a survivor, it's like, it's so comparable. Yes. The killing fields literally in Cambodia are, are a physical parable of what I described about the abuse. They are equally horrific. It's easier to hide one. Though they did a pretty good darn job burying all those bodies in the killing fields for a while. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and as you and I both have been there, as you walk the paths, you see little pieces of clothing rising to the surface or a bone rising to the surface. It reminds me so much of, you know, the healing journey is a lifelong journey. And you can think you're at a good place when suddenly you're triggered and this bone, this piece of shirt comes rising to the surface. And now great, I got to deal with this again. It just is such a reminder of that. It's a, like you said, a physical representation. Yes, it is. The other thing that the bones and pieces of material do both in the killing fields and in the lives of victims is give an invitation again to the church to see and listen and understand. Yeah. So when that bone rises, it's extremely difficult for you, whoever that's happening to, and it brings pain, but it is also God himself in the room saying, look, look, see what's been done. Learn has the potential to be redemptive if we will listen. You've been known to say, Dr. Langberg, that you believe the voices of victims of abuse, specifically abuse within Christendom, are the voice of God in our world today, that our voice is a prophetic voice to the church. That is such a statement. Yes, I believe that. It's not only validating to those of us who've found our voice and spoken up about the abuse we've endured, but I just think it's also quite a call to those among us in the church who have not experienced abuse, but have been bystanders. It's time to sit and listen. Yes. You know, as a survivor, Dr. Langberg, I think the silent period that you write about really highlights the importance of surrounding ourselves with people who will do the same. Yes. Do you talk a little bit about learning that language? Well, the phrase silent period comes from learning a new language. And, and, you know, there are things, stages that you go through if you're learning how to speak a new language. Mm-hmm. And one of them is called the silent period where you don't talk, you listen. Because you're listening to cadence, you're listening to syllables that don't exist in your language. You're listening to all kinds of things that are strange and new. And while you do that, you're learning something about the language that will enable you eventually to dialogue with the person who speaks it just how I learned about trauma. A woman was brought to me by a pastor's wife after I'd been doing whatever for maybe five or six years. And she told me she was very disturbed, but nobody knew what was the matter. She was probably in her early 20s. Clearly had a physically battered life. You can Mm -hmm. just tell by looking at her. Mm -hmm. She came to see me in the office and she sat down in a chair across the room 
in a fetal position and didn't look at me. And so, I know I'm young and I'm doing what I was taught in school. I'm supposed to figure out how to get this person to talk to me, right? So I start talking (laughs) and nothing happened. She didn't look at me. She didn't wave a little thing. She didn't do anything. Mm. And so I kept doing that for several sessions until I realized this is not working. So I I decided to shut up Mm. and I sat with her. She did not speak for six months. Wow. That's a long silent period. She did not say one word for six months. And what I learned later, her, her history was unspeakable. What, what I learned later was that it was the first time in her life she had sat behind a closed door with another human being and was safe. Wow. And she was terrified she would ruin it. Oh. So she was my teacher. And I told her, she started telling me things, tiny bits. She was trafficked when trafficking wasn't a word. I mean, it's just unspeakable and generational stuff. So I, I said to her, look, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's not in any of the books I've ever read. I don't know anybody to ask. The only person I can ask is you. So I'm going to sit here. You tell me however little or much you want. And I'll try to say things back. And when you think I get it, then tell me something else. So the self-discipline was, needless to say, a lot. I mean, I earned my living with my mouth, for goodness sake. So, (laughs) you know, I had to shut down the thing that I had. My gift, I had to shut it down. But I said to her, I want you to teach me what it's like to be you. She did. And she's affected every survivor I've ever talked to since then. She's in heaven now. But... I I learned from her. The other thing that I eventually learned from her when I figured out the silent period and waiting and all of that was that she was teaching me about the incarnation. That I had to become little where I was big. Wow. Mm -hmm. I had to take my vocal verbal power and shut it down because I would have hurt her with it, even though it was meant for good and was a good gift. Wow, that's good. Yeah. And it taught me about who Jesus was and what he did for us. And oftentimes people will sit with a trauma victim and they'll hear something and then they'll talk back to it way too soon. And they do it because they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so you have to let yourself be with and understand the value of just being with God, with us, not talking, fixing, not changing, just with and it changed me on a hundred levels. And it informed your work today. I wrote in one of my books that people in pain don't need answers. They need to be heard and they need to be loved. It reminds me so much of just this teaching that you're sharing here. So often, even I think good, well-meaning you know, Christians would think, well, I might not have an answer, but I can quote a scripture. Yes. And it's just like, that's, uh, that's also a problem. <laughs> like It's a we don't problem. Need, yeah. And the impulse is a good one in the sense of purpose and care and all of that. Uh-huh. But it will actually do damage. Absolutely. It will shut them up. Yes. And part of the message there is, if you believe this right, even if you don't say this, though some people do, if you believe this right, mm. you'll be okay so damaging well it's like 
if you see a person on the road who just got run over by a semi, you, you don't get down on the ground and quote a verse to them because if they just believe this verse, they'll be healed. It doesn't work like that. Right. And what we also forget and don't understand it, as a church, as people of God, is every trauma person you ever interact with or suffering person, doesn't have to be trauma, mm-hmm. is an invitation from God, not just the person, into something he bore, into something that is was wrong and evil and everything else that he took the hit for. He's there and he wants us to join him, not just the victim. That's something to really think about even in our current day when, you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast know how much I care about just, you know, defeating systemic racism and and how often Christians are just constantly defending this other side and things that look like them and and othering people. And it's just so crazy to me because I see Jesus in all of these victims and the black men that are being killed and the, you know, the black women who are being killed with no justice. I just see Jesus in all of them. And it's just, it it really hurts my heart to think about just something that's been really important to me for many years, Dr. Lingberg is, and part of my work has been um, helping churches to be more trauma informed. Mm -hmm. And I think we're lacking so much in that area. Yes, we are. And that is also showing up in the issues of race. Yeah. Because there's tremendous trauma yeah. in that the arena as well. Systemic racism, systemic abuse, and it's all in our church. And not understood. Not understood. Absolutely. But, but we have to do with race the same thing I just said. You know, teach me what it was like to be you. Yeah. Not just you yourself. But one of the things I... I was taught by this was the generational stuff Mm. that was so unspeakable that went Mm. back as far as anybody in her family knew in Mm -hmm. terms of sexual abuse and trafficking and rape and violence and dehumanizing stuff I wouldn't even say in a recording so you know it just um it's all she knew the same thing with any other person we certainly need to do it with people whose lives have been different from ours. Mm, and it, it's good. what we need. To, the church needs to sit down and say, I have the power to listen. Mm. Tell me what it's like to be you. Wow. That is so good. So good. Do you think that there are churches or institutions that are getting it right? You know, like, are you hopeful? Do you see it anywhere? Well, there are certainly individuals who are, Mm -hmm. and there seems to be a growing hunger for it. And there are institutions, for example, that, you know, call the office and want people on my staff or whatever to help them systemically with things. And certainly Grace is seeing things like that, not just we just blew our lives up because we've been covering up abuse for 10 years, but Mm -hmm. also actually, we don't want that to be us in 10 years. So we yeah. look at our culture and things like that. So that's happening more than it did before, which okay. help us look at ourselves uh, and help us know how to be together in a way that that doesn't become part of our history. We don't fool ourselves. Hmm. So yes, it's shifting. It's wildly slow, <laughs> but Last time I checked, that's how humans change in general. So yeah, very <laughs> we're true. all wildly slow. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that we are seeing the shift, 
slowly turn is hope. Yes. And it's funny you use that analogy because I often in talking to victims, particularly of incest through the generations, that it's what you're doing by being here in therapy and looking at this and making changes in your own life and growing and everything else Mm -hmm. is you're turning this massive ship. So when your children think back on their childhood, they will think from a different angle than you did. Hmm. And your grandchildren, it will have turned more. Yeah. You know, you're going to have children and grandchildren who does, who only know what sexual abuse is because somebody told them Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who was an incest victim. All of their siblings were incest victims and everybody else and their mothers and aunts and everybody, you know, nobody knew anybody who wasn't. Hmm. So you can't turn that ship all the way initially. It right. will sink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is a little by little process. That blessing is passed down through the generations, which is what the generational was supposed to mean in God's world. You know, you, you think about Abraham. God says to him, in you, all the nations yeah. of the earth will be blessed. Not just the people who are like you. <laughs> all. Yeah. So that's what the generational system is meant to do is meant to bless. Now it often curses. And then some of us say, it doesn't matter what happened back then. It's not affecting you, (laughs) Mm. but it's God's mechanism. He made it as part of being human. Things go down through the generations. But it's up to the individuals to sort of draw a line in the sand. Yes. And say, I'm not going that way. My family went that way for as many generations as I know. I refuse. Mm-hmm. It takes tremendous courage. And it's slow. Yeah. It's slow. But it to be through. a part of that process of turning the ship can really make a difference for generations. That is very powerful. <laughs> so one day you pick up a grandchild and hold them and realize, oh my gosh, this child has no idea what it was like to be me. Wow. Thank God sort of a side conversation to that idea. I wonder what your advice would be or thoughts um, regarding talking to your kids about your abuse. Do you think that there's, um, I ask you this because I have children and, you know, I, my, I have three boys that are five, 10 and 11. Hmm. And I'm very honest with them about the way of the world, um, Mm -hmm. the things I talk about on the podcast, I talk to them about very open. Um, And with my children, I'm also pretty open about my own abuse. There came a point when my oldest um, at nine years old was sitting in the front row of one of my speaking engagements. I thought he had headphones on playing a game. Mm. His headphones weren't working. (laughs) (laughs) And he heard my story and I wasn't sure I was ready for him to know. He knew what I talk about, but I wasn't sure he was ready to know it was my story. Yes. But it actually turned out, and I don't know if it's just because it's him and his personality and who he is, or if it was just good timing in general, but at nine years old, he was really able to absorb it. And I think it's impacted him really for the good. Um, I'm not sure yet about the next one down um, mm-hmm. when to tell him, but do you think in general that this is something that we should be talking to our own kids about, not just about abuse in general? I think you would agree with me. Talk as early as you can, Yes, but about the personal story of the parent. 
Do you think that's part of, of turning the ship? Um, yes. Yeah. But you think that there's a certain- it's this, you know, you ended up with a, what'd you say it was nine year old or something who yes. clearly was had ready. certain characteristics and was ready, even though you didn't lose the time. Yeah. So that's the key. Is knowing your kid. Yeah. You have to know the child and mm-hmm. you don't want to tell somebody and have them have nightmares for six exactly. weeks. Exactly. Yeah. Or decide that means they're not safe or all yeah. of those things. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I would do it the way we teach most things to our children, even wonderful things, is mm-hmm. bit by bit. You know, yeah. You don't, you know, you 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 tell them part of it and then they can ask questions or not. If they don't ask questions, they don't want to know anymore. Yeah. You know, that's part of how you know what kids want to know. That's great. Yeah. So, um, Following their lead, their then, questioning, yes. their interests. Yes, and you yeah. let them know they can ask you anything about it anytime they want. Mm. That's great. So you could end up with a child that has a little bit more information down the road than one that, you know, but they all know the basics. Mm-hmm. It depends. Yeah. It depends. Um, let the children lead, though, is what I'm hearing. I think that's a really good. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. The other thing you're doing is teaching them, literally, I would encourage you to do, but also by example, that uh, people recover from bad things. Mm. People can fight bad things and learn new ways. People can grow, even though people stomped all over them. Mm. You're you're giving them hope because you have no idea what life's going to deliver to them. It's true. And so what you're saying is it's not the end of the world when something bad happens to you. Mm. We don't want it to happen. We want to do everything we can to stop it everywhere we can. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have friends where something like this will happen. You right. want to be a safe person for them to talk to. You want to know how to respond. Hmm. And part of the way they're going to know that is how you talk to them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Either that or they'll take their friend by the hand and come home one day after school and say, Mommy, would you please talk to so-and-so because they said this and I thought you would be able to help them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's probably prophetic. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. In the same way, you know, I wonder, I think, you know, I I have a good idea of what you'll say, but I think it is also important to be shared. How should the church respond? Yes. The listeners that yes. maybe are working in a church or leaders in the church that are listening because they're wanting to learn. We're grateful they're here. How would you advise them? Warning signs and appropriate response. Well, I, I certainly I mean, I would encourage them to do some reading, frankly, but in terms of warning signs, the fact of the matter is that there are many victims of sexual abuse and domestic violence who are really good at hiding it. And the reason they're really good at hiding it is because that's the only way they found to be halfway safe in parts of their life. Mm. And so they may not have any warning signs. Yeah. You know, they can not fit any category that people think of with warning signs. Right. It's just that you don't know what you don't know. (laughs) That's right. That's really good. So I think we have to, number one, drop the assumption that we can figure this out with people. Yeah. But I I think anybody, it doesn't have to be an abuse situation, but anybody in church that is fearful or withdrawn or doesn't enter in or uh, all kinds of things, you want to come alongside them and understand. 
I mean, they could just be so shy that nobody's ever helped them deal with it. You know, there's a million possibilities. So I'm, I would encourage people to move toward people gently, listening, encouraging, and not assume you know what's behind it. Mm. Because people will assume there's been abuse when there wasn't. People will assume there wasn't any when there were six kinds. You know, <laughs> people become good at hiding by, by necessity. Bottom line for me with churches is, yes, they need to understand all kinds of things about abuse and how to have a safe place there and what to do if you find something out and all that kind of thing. Yeah. The fact is that the church is called to be a refuge for every single human being who walks in its door. And even if they've never even seen or talked to an abused person, they still need a refuge. And learning how to just be with people and not overpower them and not dictate to them and not tell them how to think and all those things churches can get really good at just relationally. Yeah. But, you know, I want to, I want to learn about you. I'm listening. What do you say to someone who would then say, okay, you told me to be a refuge, but like, I have the abuser here too. Well, yeah, you do need to be a refuge for the abuser and you need to be a refuge to keep the abuser from abusing mm. because they're not only destroying victims, they're destroying themselves. They're not going to like the refuge you have for them, but that's okay. They're so twisted up inside and deceived. They wouldn't recognize true refuge if they fell over it. Mm. So we have lost sight of the fact that, if, you know, they cry and say they're sorry and say, okay, and go on. Mm-hmm. We're destroying the person. They're yeah. so deceived and so enchained and so lost. And we're leaving them there with a few words. All that does is feed their capacity for deception. Mm. So a refuge for an abuser looks way different than a refuge for a victim. But right. they both need them on the same person. Mm. The victim needs a refuge from the abuser. And the abuser needs a refuge from him or herself. Wow. I mean, if you had somebody you love who had something wrong in their brain, that every time they heard cars, it made them walk in the street, what would you do? That's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. This is a person who every time they hear cars is going to walk in the street. Now what? If you yeah. love that, then you're not going to let that happen. No, absolutely. Even if they hate your guts for it. That is really good. It's a, yeah, a great metaphor. And that's the church's place. That's yes. their role. Yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, and again, you go back to Jesus, let the little ones come to me and forbid them not. And then crack the whips, turn the tables over. Mm. You've made my house a safe place, a refuge for perpetrators. (laughs) That's what he said there. Mm. That's what den of thieves means. Thieves exploit. Den means safe place. Wow. This is just such good good food for us as a church, as leaders, just as survivors, as those who care about us. Um, just everything you share is so good. And I think, you know, even just thinking on it, such a global scale, even just the climate of our political culture, um, just our world, the things we're thinking about day to day, living in a pandemic, about to have an election. There's so many things. And oh my goodness, there was this place in redeeming power that I had to just stop <laughs> and pause because you wrote, there's a section with a header of the danger of good words without good deeds. And 
you quoted some words and the words were this today. Christianity stands at the head of this country. I pledge that I will never tie myself to those who want to destroy Christianity. We want to fill our culture again with the Christian spirit. We want to burn out all the recent immoral development in literature, theater, the arts, and in the press. In short, we want to burn out the poison of immorality, which has entered into our whole life and culture as a result of liberal excess the past few years. And these were words uh, from someone else. You were quoting them. And you said, you know, take these words at face value. Do they resonate with you? You know, one listener said upon hearing them, this puts in words everything I've been searching for for years. It's the first time someone gave form to what I want. And you said that you suspect many of us would do the same. There's thousands of people who, upon hearing those words spoken, would cheer and agree and say amen. And then the next sentence just floored me. Dr. Langberg, you wrote, the words are Adolf Hitler's. (laughs) And I was like, wow, those words sound like they are inspired by Christian faith. Morality, you wrote, but the person behind them makes the difference. Man. You know, those words of a man synonymous with evil painted a picture of moral character, you know, wanting to return a society to a certain standard of living, but in actuality brought about the death and torture of a whole generation of people who were different than him. And it's just like, (laughs) it just hits you because you think about the danger of world leaders today, our current life, world leaders who say one thing, but simultaneously are deceiving masses of people. I just wondered if you could unpack that a little bit, just about what power looks like in these kinds of times. I don't, I don't think it's limited to these kinds of times. I mean, obviously mm. Hitler yeah. was a while ago. Right. Pol Pot was a while ago. Mao Zedong. I mean, Stalin, there's quite a list out there and many that I probably don't even know. I think we have to keep in mind several things. One is that you and I are made for God. We're made for the one who sits on the throne. And we long for that. And we try to find it in human form. And when we try to find it in human form, we we are, especially if we're afraid or hungry or needy in some way, we start looking for a Messiah. Yeah. We want someone to rescue us, to give us Mm -hmm. a safe place to help us flourish. And we are very susceptible. We have been since the dawn of time for believing people who tell us they could do that for us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that there's a lot of unrest and division around the world today. And Absolutely. I think we are vulnerable. And I think the other thing we become vulnerable to is wanting our safety and uh, our refuge and whatever to be here now. It's not, God's word makes that very clear. And so if you're really longing for something, you think of a girl who has been horribly abused at home and runs away. She's had a violent father, abuse survivor from him, everything. She's standing on a corner in a city and a guy drives up who's in expensive clothes and a nice car and he sticks his head out and says, hey, gorgeous, you're great. Let me take you to dinner. Mm-hmm. And guess what she does? She goes to dinner. Jumps right in. Yep. What he is, he's a trafficker, but she doesn't find out for a while. Absolutely. It's the same dynamic. 
Yeah. She's hungry for a man to say she's gorgeous and to take care of her. And he buys her clothes and everything else. And then somewhere down the road, he rapes her violently and puts her on the street. Mm-hmm. But she wanted the Messiah part. She's right to want that. That's a good desire. Mm-hmm. We just have to make sure we pick the only one. Wow. And so I, I think that with unrest and anything anywhere in the world like this, people are vulnerable yeah, to seeking the guy in the nice clothes and the car and the promises. Yeah. And they hear the voice and don't check the character. Mm. And so they hear the words, but they don't check the flesh. Mm-hmm. And the one that we know and love, who is our head, is the word made flesh, not just spoken. He lived it out in flesh in front of us. And when we're really hungry, we don't look for or wait for that. We hear the words and assume flesh is behind it. And so we find our safety for a while in a Pol Pot or a Hitler or whatever Mm -hmm. until we don't. But we never were meant to find it here. That's not in a human. The only human it's in is Jesus Christ, Hmm. who is also the one who sits on the throne. That's a really good word for me. I found myself feeling similarly vulnerable to, like you mentioned, like the little girl who Hmm. was used by a pedophile to groom. And, you know, it was the good words that were used to disguise evil. And I find myself often triggered as many survivors tell me they are as well, just living through what we're living through right now, vulnerable to the Messiah, right? The Mm -hmm. fake one. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You hear the words of, of Hitler and you long for them to be true. Yeah. And then you stop looking and you defend that liar. (laughs) Yes. Because you want so badly for it to be right and true and the answer, but you're right. There is none. There is none other than Jesus. That is it. And that's where our hope has to lie. Wow. Well, thank you, Dr. Langberg. I knew this would be one of my favorite podcasts. You are just such an inspiration and you just bring such truth. You're so bold and you're so good with words. <laughs> and I'm really thankful for today. So for everybody who's listening, I know everybody wants to get your book. Where's the best place that you would recommend? Redeeming Power is the name of Dr. Langberg's book. Yeah, it's published by Brazos. It's been up on Amazon for a while. I think it's on other sites as well. And then your website? DianeLangberg.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Lingberg. We just, we really admire you and we're grateful that you gave us your time today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.